0: words of my mouth and the acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. This season of Epiphany is a time to reflect on the revelation of Jesus, of his identity. Epiphany means revelation or manifestation. And so we think about the question, who is Jesus. And that's a question that people ask at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. His disciples asked that question after he calmed the Sea of Galilee with just a word of command. They turned to one another and they said, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Some of the religious rulers thought they had the answer to who Jesus was and an explanation for his miraculous power. Some of them said he's a demonized man. That's how he can perform these works. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons, they said. The Gospel of Mark tells us that early on in Jesus' ministry, his own family members were unsure In fact, in Mark chapter 3, it says that they came to Jesus as he's beginning his ministry. They went out to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind, that he was crazy. Other people, as they witnessed Jesus' miracles and heard his teaching, wondered aloud if Jesus really was the Messiah. People had different answers to that question. Who is Jesus? Today people have many answers to that question, don't they? For some people, he is the founder of a new religion, a teacher of a new religion like or Muhammad. He belongs to the same category. For our Muslim neighbors, Jesus is the last prophet before the final prophet, Muhammad. Muslims revere Jesus as a prophet. They honor him, but he's only a prophet. Some people today think of Jesus as kind of like a life coach. His teaching inspires them to accomplish their goals. His teaching empowers me to live my best life here and now. Probably the most common view for the man or woman on the street is that Jesus was certainly a historical figure. He taught people to be good, but he doesn't have much relevance for life today. Who is Jesus? And why does it matter? Well, we get an answer to that question at Jesus' baptism. This is a key Moment in the life of Jesus happens just before he begins his public ministry around the age of 30. And in this story, and I invite you to take a look at this passage in Matthew chapter 3 that's in your bulletin. God tells us who Jesus is. Now, if God is telling us who Jesus is, we need to listen to what God says about Jesus. We need to Trust what God says about Jesus. I want to kind of dive into to this and pay special attention to verse 17 where God speaks. I want us to hear what God says about Jesus' identity. At his baptism, something miraculous, something stunning happens to Jesus a vision, a voice, the heavens open. He sees the spirit of God descending, that descends upon him like a dove and rests upon him. And then the voice from heaven, which is the voice of the Father, speaks. And here is what God the Father says about Jesus. First, that Jesus is his son. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. What does it mean to call Jesus Jesus? The Son of God. What does that title mean? For a lot of us, I think our immediate response might be to to connect that title, Jesus is the Son of God, with his nature, his divine nature. He shares the same nature as God the Father. And uh, just as my sons, Sam and Noah, share my nature, the nature of their father, human nature so god the son shares the same nature as god the father he is divine he's fully divine and there are certainly scriptures that's true there are scriptures that make that link between the name or the title son of god and the nature of jesus but i don't think that is what's being emphasized here at the baptism what god says about Jesus, his son at his baptism, is filled with Old Testament language. These are words, these are titles that Jesus would have read and heard read in the synagogue. He would have heard them in the temple as a Jewish boy going growing up. He would have been very familiar with these words and these titles and phrases. And as he grew, he would have prayed through these words and memorized these words. The language of the Old Testament is echoing here in the voice of God in verse 17. So when the Old Testament talks about the Son of God, it's speaking of someone who bears a special role in the plan of God, in the plan of God for the world. In God's plan to redeem the world, to redeem people. So God calls the nation of Israel. Israel played a special role in God's plan. God calls the nation of Israel his son in several places. Hosea 11, chapter 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God had a special plan and purpose for Israel. That is why God saved Israel out of Egypt. Israel was to be a blessing to the world, to bring God's salvation to the nations. Israel was to embody the goodness and the holiness of God. Israel was called the son of God. And God calls the kings of Israel his son. Specifically, especially God calls King David his son. You see that, if you read the Psalms, you see that in Psalm chapter 2. And then there's a very key text in the Old Testament. This is one of these texts that are on the exam. If We're going to go through ordination in our diocese. This text is on the exam. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. God is making a covenant with King David in 2 Samuel 7, and through the prophet Nathan, God promises David that the kingdom of one of his descendants will last forever, and he shall be my son, and he will inherit an eternal kingdom. This is the promise of a Messiah, a king from the line of David who will reign forever. This is why, as we've... Just gotten through the season of of Christmas and so many of those texts make the point that Jesus was from the line of David, from the Messianic line. So here's the point. When God declares Jesus to be his son at his baptism, he's saying, this is the one, this is the Messiah who plays the key role in my plan to save, to redeem, to bless the world. Israel, as God's son, could not do it. Israel was not faithful to God. The kings of Israel could not do it. None of them were perfectly faithful to God. None of them perfectly fulfilled the role that God had for them. Besides, the kingdom of Jerusalem was destroyed in the 6th century. And so, as one scholar, Christopher Wright, puts it, Regarding the baptism of Jesus, on the shoulders of Jesus as Son of God lay the responsibility of being God's true Son. Jesus is God's true Son. He fulfilled those promises of Israel. He embodied that role perfectly as the King, as the Messiah. And in Him, you and I become sons and daughters of God. He is the true Son of God, and so through Jesus flows God's salvation now to the world and to us. Through Jesus flows God's goodness and God's life and God's grace and God's truth and God's love. If you want to be connected to God, be connected to Jesus, the Son of God. If you want to be renewed in that connection this morning, Renew your connection with Jesus Christ. As the son of God, he's at the center of God's plan for the world and for you. And he mediates the blessing of God and the salvation of God. He's declared here not just to be the son of God, but the beloved son of God. You are my son, my beloved, God says. The idea of Jesus as the beloved son is a theme that's prominent in the gospel of John. John brings this out beautifully in his gospel in several places. So Jesus says, for example, the father loves the son. And has given all things into his hand. Because Jesus is the son of God, he has received gifts from his, his father. Fathers like to give gifts and special privileges to their children. And especially in Jewish culture, the son had a place of prominence. Jesus is talking here about spiritual authority in that context. Later on in John, he says the father loves the son and shows him what he is doing. Jesus has privileged information as the Son of God. Not everybody who sees what is happening in the ministry of Jesus understand what's happening. Many people don't understand what's happening. But because Jesus is the Son of God, he knows what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in and through him. The Father loves the Son and shows him what he is doing. And then, perhaps most astounding of all, at the end of the Gospel of John, in this beautiful passage where Jesus is praying to his Father and he's praying for his disciples. Jesus prays this to his Father. He prays that the love which you have loved me before the foundation of the world would be in them. So he doesn't become the beloved Son of God at his baptism. He has always been the beloved Son. That identity is confirmed at his baptism. But this is a love that has been going on for all eternity. Jesus says, The love that, with which you have loved me before the foundation of the world, he prays that it would be in his disciples because Jesus is the beloved Son of God and that love is in him. When we're connected to him, that love comes into our life as well. So, to be the beloved Son of God puts Jesus in this place of privilege. A privileged position. But it's not a position that will shelter him from pain and suffering and sorrow, as we know. This position, this vocation as the Son of God, the beloved Son of God, is going to lead him all the way to the cross in fact, when Jesus heard that phrase, those words, "My beloved son," and when Matthew's first readers read that phrase, probably I, I can't say this with certainty, but probably what was called to mind was God's story of Abraham and or the story of Abraham and Isaac. In Genesis, where God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, your beloved son, and offer him as a burnt offering. There's a connection between Jesus' role and his call to sacrifice himself as a beloved son. God who spared the life of Isaac did not spare the life of his own son for our sins, for your sins. So we could be reconciled to him. So we could know the life of God and his love now and forever. The beloved son of God with all the privilege and power that entailed freely gives his life as a sacrifice for sinners, for you and for me. And that idea of Jesus' sacrificial work connects with the final phrase in God's announcement, this unveiling, this epiphany of Jesus' revelation, when God says, With whom I'm well pleased. Take, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. That recalls the passage that we read in Isaiah this morning, if you want to look there. One of those suffering servant passages. As you get to the end of the book of Isaiah, God begins to prophesy through the prophet Isaiah that there is one who is going to come and he is going to fulfill the role that God had for Israel. And he is going to be the one through whom God's blessing is going to come to Israel and to the nations of the world. This is the servant of God. And so we have these servant passages, these servant songs as Isaiah draws to a close. The hope of one to come, this servant. This is one of those passages, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, with whom I'm well pleased. That's the connotation there. I have put my spirit upon him. You see the resonance here. You see the connection with the baptism. And as you read a passage like this and other passages that predict the coming of a servant of God you can see the the outlines of of Jesus's ministries you reflect on the kind of person Jesus was and the kind of ministry that he carried out and what he did to accomplish the salvation of God and to show God's love and justice in the world you can see it here in this passage I love verse 3 a bruised reed he will not break you get that image of a of a of a reed bending in the wind that's bruised and is just ready to bend over. And the idea here is that people can be like that. They can be bruised and battered and abused and they can suffer greatly. And this servant is not going to push them over and break them with condemnation. He's going to come with healing and wholeness and restore broken people and abused people and people who are overlooked. And he'll bring forth justice. He'll faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus is the one who, who shows us, who embodies justice. His message was the same for all people. Whether they're rich or poor, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in me. Repent of your sins. Turn to me for salvation. He didn't play favorites. He was just. And the scripture tells us that he's going to come again as the judge. If you care about justice, you should love Jesus. He taught the world what justice looks like. It it wasn't the Roman culture or the uh, Greco-Roman culture in the first century that taught people to pay special attention to the meek and the poor and the lonely and the helpless. It was Jesus who taught the world to treat people that way. In the Greco-Roman world, you wanted to curry favor with the powerful. Jesus ministered to the weak and the poor and the broken. He fulfills the, uh, the the outline. He fills out the outline of the suffering servant of God. And that's what we see later on as these servant songs develop in Isaiah 53. This is something we read on Good Friday, don't we? The passage about the suffering servant of God. The servant who, Isaiah 53 says, will come and pour out his life unto death and who will be numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors and he would be bruised for our iniquity and by his stripes we've been healed. The chastisement that we deserve would be poured out upon him. He was numbered with the transgressors He was sinless, but he willingly bore our sins. He was perfectly righteous, but he was willing to identify with the unrighteous in order to heal them, in order to save them. And so Jesus gets into the baptismal waters. It was John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why did he get into those baptismal waters? Was he a sinner who needed to repent? By the way, this is one of those passages that even very skeptical scholars of the New Testament say this must be true because this is kind of embarrassing to see Jesus getting into the baptismal waters which was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus do that? Well, he says to fulfill all righteousness. This is the right thing to do. This is what God is calling He wants to affirm John's baptism and affirm what God is doing through this baptism. But I think there's another dimension here. This is how he is going to make people righteous by identifying with sinners so that in his redemptive death, he can restore them, heal them, and win the forgiveness of God. He who was without sin became sin for us in order that we might be the righteousness of God. Paul says. We're thinking about who Jesus is and what he did and why it matters. He came to identify with us as sinners and that identification happens at his baptism, takes him all the way to the cross and he's raised to new life so that we can be restored in our relationship with God. He makes sinners righteous. Righteous. I was reading an article just recently that was talking about, and we're all aware of how cultural currents are shifting people away from the traditional Christian message and traditional religion. This author was talking about the fact that when people turn their back on religion and on Christianity, it's not as if the ultimate questions of life are... Shunted off to the side. People still need to have some answer to the question, what makes life significant? What makes my life significant? Where can I find identity and purpose? And this author was making the case that in our culture today, achievement is the answer for so many people, or performance, performance-ism he calls it. He says that's the hallmark of the secular religion today. And he talks about how especially he sees this, he works with youth, how he sees this in youth culture, high school students, college students. Did you know that there's a connection between the rise of anxiety and even suicide rates and this immense burden that young people feel, especially young people growing up in high achievement culture like West County here in St. Louis. They see wealth and achievement and they're told you've got to get these scores and you've got to do this and be this kind of athlete or you're just, your future's going to be hopeless. And he says there's a link between that sort of burden that's put on people today in our culture and suicide and anxiety. And there's even indications that the, the suicide rates or their suicide packs in places like Palo Alto and places in Washington, D.C., again, places of affluence that young people are, are under this burden to achieve, to perform. And the performance culture says if you're not doing enough and you're not doing well enough, then you're not enough. And the performance culture says there's no distinction between who you are and what you do. You are what you do. You are what you perform. But the gospel of Jesus says. You are enough. Based on what Christ has done for you. You are accepted not based on your performance, but based on his performance, what he has done, his fulfillment of the law, his obedience to God that took him all the way to the cross, his trust in. In God's power to raise him from the dead. The gospel says you are enough because in Christ you are a beloved son and daughter. And you didn't earn it. You receive it as a gift. And that identity is something that we need to cling on to. That this is our ultimate identity. Uh, The gifts that we've given, the talent that we have, the opportunities that we have are not a way to keep score. It's a way to serve people and it's a way to glorify God with the gifts that he's given us. But we're taught so much in this culture that it's based on what we do. Even yesterday, my daughter uh, Lydia was in a basketball game Second grade girls basketball, if you ever want to spend some time on a Saturday, uh, go out and watch a second grade basketball game. She scored six points. In second grade girls basketball, that's like half the points on the team. She was like the James Harding of her team. And uh, I noticed whenever she would score a bucket, she started getting on a roll. She'd look over to me and smile. And I would smile back to her. And the smile kind of grew the more points she made. I thought that that is wonderful to affirm that, but what happens when she doesn't make the bucket, you know? And I need to, as a father, pay attention to that and affirm her significance and worth. Unconditional love. That's what we get from God. That's what we get through Christ. That's our core identity. In 2020, I need to work on claiming that identity for myself. It's not based on what I do, but who I am in Christ. That starts at our baptism, where he says, you're my son, you're my daughter. And then we claim that by faith. And then we grow in that as life's journey continues on. Those other versions of Jesus... Jesus as another religious teacher, Jesus as another prophet, Jesus as life coach. I don't think those versions of Jesus are worthy of worship, worthy of giving my life to. Those versions of Jesus are not able to forgive me of my sins or give me hope in the face of death or hope that one day this broken world will be put to right. But if he is who God says he is, If he is what the scripture says he is, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. No one is more important. No one is more relevant. No one is more worthy of our worship. Amen. Let's pray. Help us, God, to live into this identity in this new year. And help us, God, to point people to the truth of who Christ is. Help us as your children to bear witness to the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, to the light and life and love and grace and truth and the new life that is found in him for those who are in darkness and unbelief. Help our church to grow in that. Help each of us to grow in that, I pray, this new year. In Jesus' name.